This is an RNZ podcast. The Climate Change Commission has unveiled a report outlining major changes, including the way New Zealand builds homes, a ban on controversial car imports and reducing livestock numbers by 15%. That was RNZ's Nicola right there with the story that led the news at 8 o'clock on Monday morning for RNZ and most other news outlets too that day. And that report, which had come out the afternoon before, is seen by many as a blueprint for how we might have to live and produce in the future, whether we like it or not, in order to get carbon emissions down. Now this is big stuff for the whole country and for every individual household and consumer. No new gas-guzzling cars, no gas in new houses and fewer farm animals. These were just some of the recommendations that made headlines and made talkback radio panels light up. Now, the government isn't obliged to turn any of this into policy, but pundits and politicians alike, including opposition ones, certainly expect them to. The biggest economic transformation since the 1980s, and many of us don't even know it, was how Stuff's climate editor Eloise Gibson and reporter Olivia Wannan put it in an article before the report came out last Sunday. And at 6pm on Sunday night, it led TVNZ's evening news as well. No more gas connections, an end to coal use and a phasing out of conventional cars. The Climate Commission's released its draft plan on how to slash the country's emissions, saying targets will not be met without strong and decisive action. This is one of the most significant pieces of work that this government will undertake. Now in that TVNZ report, the Prime Minister and the Climate Change Minister James Shaw were facing reporters clutching copies of that report, which was actually two documents, one outlining the Commission's advice to the government and then a longer one with the evidence to backstop their conclusions. And there was a lot in them for reporters to take in and explain to us all in their coverage. And what was no easy task was made even harder by the way it was all released. Both documents had been made public just an hour before the minister's press conference at 2pm. And the first most journalists knew exactly about what was in the document came in a joint press release issued by the Prime Minister's office at 9.30 on Sunday morning. Now it turned out that some reporters had been given a heads up on one or both reports under embargo, though potentially commercially sensitive budget numbers in them had been redacted. So several media outlets were able to publish timely, what-you-need-to-know type reports. Stuff, for example, had several of them ready to roll. But none of the reporters we've spoken to was able to see any of the details before last Thursday. And some reporters had no advanced access at all, even if they asked for it last week. Now, one of those who missed out was Richard Harmon of the subscription-based news site politic.co.nz, and he made this point in his coverage of the report on Monday. Unfortunately, because of the way it was released, it's been impossible to analyse, but sector groups and NGOs will start to do that today on the basis of what's likely to be the year's most consuming political debate. And he was far from the only reporter who was unhappy about all this, because to them, the decisions on who did and who didn't get a heads up all seemed a bit arbitrary, leading to suspicions that the Climate Change Commission might be playing favourites, or that they didn't trust certain reporters, or perhaps their outlets. So I called the Climate Change Commission Chair Dr Rod Carr, who happened to be at a wedding in Waitangi weekend at the time, and I asked him, is that what the Commission was up to? We did, in limiting the choice, focus on those who had already expressed a continuing interest in understanding the complexity of the issues that climate change raises. But there was no intention to try and avoid the inevitable headlines that that these kind of things will provoke. That that is, to me, just part of what is the ebb and thrust of 
uh, public discourse in a democracy. But you didn't want, say, stories about their snuffing out your barbecue coming out on the Saturday morning. You really wanted the focus to be on the guts of the report and, uh, you know, the, the lined-up reporting on Sunday night and Monday morning. Yes, although, actually, to be fair, Colin, I wasn't worried about the conversations of, of sensational headlines. I was genuinely concerned about the market-sensitive data that... Uh, reading between the lines or actually reading the lines uh, early uh, could have set up a game in which we could have been accused of uh, being naive about the impact our advice was going to have on asset prices and values. And and, and that would have been damning. Well, in, in May, which I guess is next time, you'll be presenting the final advice having considered uh, public submissions and feedback. Even a suggestion of something like a budget-style lock-up, which might be fairer to a greater number of journalists, might be an option? Is that something you think might you might consider? A- absolutely. And, and in fact, we did, uh, as you know, from my Reserve Bank days, I'm very familiar with, with uh, those kind of releases and lockups, and we did actually evaluate that. So we have asked the team to think, what have we learned from this experience? What are our options? How might we do it um, in a way that is more inclusive next time? Well, let's hope lessons are learned from this when it comes time to present the final advice from the government in May because these reports are drafts urging public submissions until mid-March and the submissions were solicited like this in the report itself. If you're here because you have one big thing to tell us, you can do that here. If this is all you want to provide by way of submission, that's fine by us. We'll consider all the submissions we receive. However, on News Talk ZB last Monday, Kerry McIver told her listeners it wouldn't make any difference if they did. I mean, it is only a draft report. You can put your submissions in, but you might as well be talking to your bum, really, if you think you're going to make any changes whatsoever. While Kerry McIver reckoned we should get used to the carbon-cutting changes in the report, others on Talk Radio on Monday reckoned it was a bum deal, not always with reference, though, to what was actually in the report. For example, on News Talk ZB's early edition show earlier on Monday, host Tim Dower told his early-rising audience he was alarmed by the recommended 15% reduction in farm herds. Does that not mean at least 15% less production? Uh, just kind of, you know, uh, back of a handkerchief numbers. 15% production, so 15% less dairy to export, 15% less sheep meat and or 15% less beef uh, and so on and so forth. The Commission's recommended herd reduction doesn't mean that at all. It's quite clear in the report and in the summary of the advice and it's really not hard to find. But Tim Dow went on to tell his listeners this. We know, we heard this only last week, our farmers are pretty much the most carbon efficient on Earth, on the entire planet. We're really good at it. And that's a big claim. Last week, ag research analysis did find that New Zealand dairy farms had a carbon footprint smaller on average than those in 18 other countries. But, as Stuff reported, that didn't include the likes of the UK, Brazil and Poland because Ag Research used a New Zealand-specific benchmark and not the one that the IPCC uses to make international comparisons on carbon footprints. Anyhow, News Talk ZB's Tim Dower had a higher opinion of that research than the findings of the Climate Change Commission. Or is there some greater, more deviant plan going on here? Are we all going to have to, all over the world, eat less meat? Are we going to be forced to be vegans? Or maybe it'll just be 15% of us uh, that have to be vegans, compulsory. But any deviant agenda was all in his mind. There's nothing in either of the Climate Change Commission's documents last weekend about veganism, let alone a compulsory quota for the years ahead. 
And Tim Dower also disapproved of the commission's makeup. All experts and scientists, he said, but hardly anyone from industry. And there was too much facial hair on the chair. And I think the, the killer is when you see the chairman, Dr Carr. Now, you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, uh, but uh, a, a bloke with a Green Party beard and a massive piece of punami, it tells you everything, doesn't it, that you need to know. And Tim Dower's rather deviant pronunciation of Bonamu tells you a bit too. Two hours later, ZB's morning host Mike Yardley trailed a chat with Climate Change Minister James Shaw like this. We will be raising a range of issues with James Shaw after 7.30. I really want to get into the issue of EVs and some of the practicalities, like what the hell are we going to do with the batteries? Do we know? And when are EVs going to start paying road user charges? Hello? And plenty of issues to do with dairying as well. And maybe a bit of cycling with the climate change minister, James Shaw. And in the end, he didn't raise cycling with the minister, but he did grill him about when road user charges would be paid by the drivers of electric cars, though that's not a significant issue in the climate change report. He also asked what he'd do with the old batteries for EVs in future, a significant issue at the moment for consumers and the environment, but not emissions. And Mike Yardley also asked James Shaw at length about whether we should have gene-edited ryegrass growing here on our farms. Now, that's also an environmental issue, and the report does mention GE advances as something that may change the productivity game for farming in future, but it's not really a climate or emissions reduction factor at the moment or in the Climate Change Commission's report. Meanwhile, on the AM show at the same time, host Duncan Garner and his sceptical sidekicks were also sidetracked by the apparent roadblock of the appeal of electric cars. I seriously don't think we can, within 10 years, stop petrol cars coming in. Oh, if you base it on something like Kiwi Build, I'd like to see it come in. The problem at the moment is the infrastructure or lack of it for uh, charging cars and stuff, and also the price, man. We just don't have cheap. But we just don't, we don't bring that many into yeah. the country. And they're horrible to drive. I mean, after driving one, when we went out and, and test drove one, I will never drive one again. It's unnerving. The, the driving experience is, is awful. If, if, if someone gave me a Tesla tomorrow, I wouldn't drive it. If we can't get a vaccine into New Zealand, thundered Duncan Garner, how on earth can we get 4 million electric cars here in such a short time? But getting COVID vaccinations up and running is a very specific 2021 issue. Transitioning from petrol cars to other fuels is a long-term one that's already underway. Duncan Garner was also worried by that recommended 15% cut to farm herds, and he also told his listeners this must mean a corresponding cut in food production. Though when Federated Farmers President Andrew Hoggard popped up on the show minutes later, he said it didn't. How do we do this? How do you have 15% fewer cows going through your shed this morning but produce the same level of milk? I, I, I was never in that economics class and never knew how it worked. Um, well, I mean, our cows can produce quite considerably more than they do at the moment um, if you give them the right conditions. Particular, you know, take a cow from New Zealand, put it in a barn in anywhere in the Northern Hemisphere and it's going to produce a lot more. Um, our challenge is how do we increase that productivity from those cows? And Andrew Hoggard went on to tell Duncan Garner that, in fact, Kiwi farmers have already proved this in the past. It's important to remember this looks across the entire sector. Um, I mean, but as an example, our sheep numbers over... Uh, a couple of decades ago, we're something like 70 million. Now we're down around 30 or less, and we're still maintaining the same output in terms of um, meat. So, you know, we, our farmers have shown they are able to be a lot more efficient and able to produce more from less. Um, we're just going to make sure we've got these targets right so that um, we're not sort of 
wasting potential income where we don't need to be. Now, Newsroom's Mark Adalder had read that bit of the report and he knew that it said a herd with fewer cows that maintains the same production through higher production per cow would require less feed overall. And if sheep and beef and dairy animal numbers fall by 15% by 2030, the total volume of milk produced remains flat, the Commission projects, while the total volume of meat produced increases slightly. Andrew Hoggard of Federated Farmers and Steve Carden, the CEO of Landcorp, both told Newsroom that all this was already happening and would dovetail with developments like the so-called methane vaccine in the near future and maybe even that gene-edited ryegrass that Mike Yardley was so keen on on Newstalk ZB. Now, later on last Monday, dedicated driver and one-time ambassador for Audi cars, Peter Williams, was back on the Magic Talk station after his long holiday, telling his listeners the Climate Change Commission's report was bleak for drivers. But this is going to happen. In in 10 years from now, you will not be able to buy uh, a, a, a nice Japanese or European car powered by petrol or diesel. You, you will not be able to yeah, do Yeah, well, maybe so, Peter. But that's wrong. The Commission does recommend winding down imports of fossil fueled light vehicles by 2032, but there will still be plenty to buy and sell for years after that. Indeed, the Commission's report estimates that electric cars will be just 40% of the fleet by 2035. And that's easy to find in the Commission's report too, but Peter Williams didn't see it, unsurprisingly perhaps based on this. Yeah, but this whole report, I don't know, haven't read the the whole thing or anything. Well, no, nobody has, really, because 800 pages, but uh, it's only come out in Tracy fashion so far. And it's not true that only a Tracy is available now. Both reports, broken down chapter by chapter, have been online since last Sunday afternoon. Peter Williams went on to tell his listeners that none of this would have any impact anyway on the world's weather. Though as one of the most vocal climate change sceptics on the air in New Zealand, Peter Williams knows that climate and the weather are very different things. Later in the day on the same station, Drive Time host Ryan Bridge was clearly not convinced by the government's message that the transition outlined by the Climate Change Commission was achievable and affordable or even desirable. Why do all of this go through all the effort, reconfigure our economy, decimate some of our industries? When I looked to the UK today, they've just approved a new coal mine in Cumbria. And Ryan Bridge was also unconvinced by the electric transition for transport. The other interesting thing here is by 2030, they want 84% of medium-sized trucks and 69% of heavy trucks electric. Do we? Do these exist? Are there electric heavy trucks out there? How far do they go? What's the range on these things? Is that realistic? But again, the Commission's report did actually address this, and it would have only taken a couple of minutes to find the bit that says that medium and heavy trucks will be slower to electrify because of current battery technology. Of the trucks imported in 2030, the report says, only about 15% of medium trucks and 8% of heavy ones would be electric. But by 2035, these would increase to 84% and 69% respectively because manufacturers overseas are already working on it. Like his fellow talk hosts, Ryan Bridge was also fretting on behalf of farmers and that reduction in herd sizes. And Federated Farmers President Andrew Hoggard, working overtime with the media on Monday, took another call from him to explain, again, what the report actually says about the 15% proposal. 
they haven't my reading of it is that they haven't recommended that we should reduce livestock by 15%. They've looked at what is transferring out of livestock into horticulture uh, as a trend, uh, the efficiencies that we have historically been gaining in agriculture, and extrapolated that out to think that, hey, we can maintain production and have 15% less cows. Now, I'd argue they're probably a little too optimistic there. I think we could probably maintain production and with a few extra cows, but perhaps more in the 5% to 10% range. Although, quite frankly, I think uh, our goal would actually be just maintaining stock numbers, not increasing um, the amount of gas um, or even having a slight reduction, but actually increasing production. And after that, Federated Farmers Andrew Hoggard had interesting advice for farmers listening in and also Magic Talk listeners. I would say that perhaps they need to actually read the report rather than rely on the reporting of it um, because there is actually quite a bunch of good stuff in there. Now, as we've heard, there's been a lot of reporting and analysis this week by journalists who understood the significance of what was in these big reports from the Climate Change Commission, and they worked hard to sum it all up for the public, even if the details were released to them in a way that made that a bigger task than it should have been. But there's also been a lot on the air from people with opinions on the bid to cut emissions over the next 30 years who really didn't engage with what was in the report at all.